All right, good morning again, everybody. Uh, Welcome again to this gathering of Old Oak Bible Church. Welcome to those uh, who are joining us online. Hopefully this is not a distraction for y'all. It's kind of, we've kind of gotten used to it. Um, As we begin our time in God's Word, I have a question for you. Sometimes I like to begin with poignant questions. So here's one. This was asked to me recently. Who is one person from history with whom you would choose to spend an entire week. One person from history you would spend an entire week with. Uh, One of my friends asked me that recently. Uh, He asked that through a group text message chain that he uses a little too much, but I digress. Um, I chose Teddy Roosevelt for a number of reasons, but I've already done a sermon introduction about Teddy Roosevelt, and it was kind of recent. So preparing for this sermon, I thought about this question, and I thought... How would Jesus answer this question? Who would Jesus choose to spend an entire week with? Now, I admit we have to speculate about this. We have to kind of guess. Um, But Jesus did talk about one individual differently than he did other individuals. He called this individual the greatest born of women. And that's pretty high praise from Jesus. And this was John the Baptist. Now, I wonder, could you imagine a week, if you know anything about him, could you imagine a week spent with John the Baptist? I mean, you would probably have to be pretty adventurous to spend a week with John the Baptist. It'd likely be spent in the wilderness. You, uh, your diet would consist of locusts and honey. You'd probably wear very itchy clothing. And not to mention you're hanging around a guy whose M.O. was calling people, everybody he saw, to repent. So it might be uncomfortable and awkward. This would be a unique week. But even for the guy who Jesus called the greatest born of women, John the Baptist's greatness was only in relation to Jesus. John the Baptist wasn't great because he was some man of stature. He was great because of his closeness and service to Christ. Jesus understood that. Jesus called John the Baptist great because John was like the final Old Testament prophet. He was the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. And John himself understood that his greatness was only in relation to Christ. He understood that what, what was most important about him was his relationship to Jesus. John summed up the basis of his life in ministry in one famous phrase. You might know it. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Now in today's passage from 1 Corinthians, we find that the Apostle Paul was cut from the same cloth of greatness as John the Baptist. So whether it's John or Paul or any other Christian, we aim to live and minister in such a way that makes clear it is not us who secures our favor with God. It is not us who deserves the spotlight and the glory. It is Christ. We are not meant to increase ourselves. We are meant to increase him. So with that, we're going to dive in to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. You can turn there in your Bible, or you can follow along. It's printed in your bulletin. So 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God for it. We're going to get a bit of a running start to this passage because we've spent four studies in 1 Corinthians so far. So a running start to this passage today. The Christians in the ancient metropolis of Corinth, they were a mess. They had infighting. They had divisions. They had unaddressed sin that Paul will say, sin of a kind that would have offended even the rank pagan society around them. They were a mess. But as we've read so far in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote to these Christians with the care of a pastor and as a fellow brother in the Lord, a part of the same family. He tells the Corinthians who they are, not because of themselves, but because of Jesus. That though they are ungodly, though they are sinful, yet because of Jesus in their place, in God's sight, they are clean and they are righteous. Paul reminds them that now, being clean and righteous in God's sight because of Christ, now God calls them to live out who they already are in Christ. So we said that this is like an orphan being adopted into a family. That child is already a part of the family, but now that child has to learn what it means to live in that family. That's much of the Christian life. So in this letter so far, Paul's going to address issue after issue that belayed these Christians in Corinth, this very messy church. And the first issue he takes up is the divisions that racked them. He does this really over the span of the first four chapters, which is where we're going to be in this round of 1 Corinthians this year. And he begins his main appeal in chapter 1, verse 10. He says there, he tells them, guys, work toward unity in Christ. This is what Christ means for you as a church being of the same mind, the same judgment. Now, these divisions in the church of Corinth, they were over loyalty to certain human teachers. They aligned with whatever teacher they deemed the most eloquent, the most effective, according to their culture's standards. Now, Paul goes on then to deconstruct their values, valuing eloquence and effectiveness. He reminds them in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, that God saved his people, not through some eloquent message designed by the world, but God saved his people through the gospel designed by him that the world deems as weak. In verses 26 to 31, Paul reminds them that effectiveness and eloquence do not earn people a place with God. If they want to prove that, all the Corinthians had to do was look around them because none of them were effective or eloquent. Now, in today's passage, Paul reminds these weak people of the weak man from whom they first heard this weak gospel. So there it is. A weak message believed by a weak people preached by a weak preacher. And all of that should prove that our wisdom, our cleverness, are not what makes a difference with our place with God. And what makes a difference with our place with God is God's grace and God's power. So we say, it's God who designed the message. God who chose the people. It's God who brought those people to faith. 
So the way that Paul ministered to them when he first came to them and preached to them the gospel should remind them how they should live in a way that showcases God's power and grace, not their own insight and ability. So here's what I think is the main takeaway that Paul wants the Corinthians to get out of this opening passage from chapter 2. If God saved us by his power in the gospel, then we shouldn't obsess over our performance and human wisdom. If God saved us by his power in the gospel, then we should not obsess over our performance and over human wisdom. So here's how we'll walk through chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We're going to notice Paul's message, Paul's manner, and Paul's motive. Three M's, just like the company. Message, verses 1 to 2. Opening chapter 2, Paul wants the screen to go blurry, fade to black and white, because it is time for a flashback scene. First described in Acts chapter 18, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the first time he came to them and met them and preached the gospel to them. Now he recalls this memory here in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians with a negative statement and with a positive statement. Negatively, he tells them he did not come to them with lofty speech or wisdom. Positively, he said, he came to them preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Soon enough, Paul's going to make clear why he avoided this lofty speech and wisdom. But for now, knowing the Corinthian culture, like we've tried to do over the last few weeks, knowing the Corinthian culture also helps us understand Paul's decision and Paul's tactics. Now, the philosophers of the Corinthian age, during the time this letter was received, they got praised not just for the content of their speech. The philosophers of that age got praised mainly for the style of their speech. Those who sounded the smartest, those who were the most convincing, those who were the most engaging and moving, those are the ones who got the largest followings and crowds. This strategy, though it seems fine, makes it about the messenger more than the message. Now, Paul already told the Corinthians back in chapter 1, verse 17, that eloquent words of wisdom distract from the gospel of Jesus, from the word of the cross. So we think about that's the Corinthian culture. You think about all our culture a little bit, not exactly the same as Corinth, but some similarities. While we do not value rhetoric and oratory in the same way the Corinthian culture did, we still have marketers from every arena possible, whether it's media, whether it's business or anything else. We have marketers who seek to package their message in whatever way they can. I'm helped here by John Stott, famous British pastor. These marketers will suppress, distort, or embellish the truth to serve their own agenda, to keep you tuning in, to keep you scrolling, or to, buy, to make you buy their product. These marketers will rely on different psychological techniques and strategies to convince you. They will use pressure, they will use humor, They will use pathos, they will use deceit, or fear, or flattery, or logic, making it about the messenger, not the message, distracting from the message. So Paul chooses a more excellent way. Instead of speaking in a way that would make him sound as best as possible, positively, Paul chose to stick to Jesus and the cross. That was the content of his message. 
Jesus and the cross, he didn't suppress it, he didn't distort it, he didn't embellish it in order to gain popularity. He simply stuck to the gospel entrusted to him by God to proclaim. And notice here, I think it's worth noticing, it's not just that Paul preached Jesus. What did he preach? He preached Jesus and him crucified. It's important to notice because Paul preached the true Jesus. Friends, if you take away the cross, if you just say, I preach Jesus, you have to explain what you mean. Take away the cross and you take away Jesus' purpose for coming to earth in the first place, to give his life as a ransom for many. Take away the cross and you begin to make Jesus into whoever you want him to be. You take away the cross and Jesus becomes slowly just another teacher and not the one true savior, the one mediator between God and man. So for example, friends, this is important because just because a church preaches Jesus does not mean that church preaches Jesus Christ crucified. Just because a church has a cross on its steeple does not automatically mean the cross is central in their sermons. So this is Paul's content. Jesus Christ and him crucified. In verse 2, look there. Paul writes that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Know nothing among them except that. That is a little strange statement, isn't it? Is Paul some anti-intellectual? You can't learn anything besides what's in the Bible. This is all that I'm ever going to talk about. Well, let's clarify a little bit. Did Paul avoid the lofty speech and wisdom of the popular speakers of his day because he had a good dose of self-awareness? Because he knew secretly that he really couldn't keep up with the popular speakers of his day, so he just wouldn't try. You know, for example, if, if I went to the gym, assuming that the gym is open, um, if I went to the gym and I saw some very large gentleman bench pressing 700 pounds, I wouldn't go up to him and say, excuse me, sir, can I get the next set? Because I think I can handle this too. Now, I'll just stick to the elliptical. I'll stick to what I'm good at. So maybe Paul has just a good self-awareness and sticks to what he knows he can do. No, this wasn't the case. Paul's message and delivery when he first came to the Corinthians were the result, notice, of a deliberate choice. He says, I chose to know nothing among you. He chose to stick to Jesus and him crucified, but he could have chose to play up his education. Remember, friends, Paul was a well-educated person. Paul even was an effective communicator. For example, when Paul and his friend Barnabas went to the city of Lystra in Acts 14, the people there identified Paul as the Greek god Hermes. This is the god of communication. Now, we can ask, did Paul avoid the lofty speech and wisdom of the philosophers of his day? Because he didn't want to do anything to try to sway and convince his hearers. No. Even when we read the full story of his time in Corinth in Acts 18, it says that Paul attempted to persuade both Jews and Greeks about Jesus. Good reasons why to believe in Jesus. So did Paul avoid this because he wanted to be as plain and as wooden as possible? I'm just going to know Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's it. I'm just going to be plain and wooden about it. No, I think that's reading too much into it. Paul wants to communicate the gospel message with a heart to those he preached to. 
just read it throughout Acts and, and how he has a heart for those who he tried to get to believe in Jesus. He wanted to preach in a way that his audience could understand. He would tailor his message, but he wouldn't compromise it. And we can ask again, did Paul avoid this lofty speech and wisdom and just stick to Jesus and the cross because he refused to talk about anything else? Well, no. All we have to do is read the rest of this letter in 1 Corinthians. So Paul does not make the statement he makes in verse 2 because he was a bad communicator, because he refused to present a persuasive case for Jesus because he refused to speak to people on their level, or because he wouldn't learn or teach any other topic. No, in verses 1 to 2, Paul talks simply about the central content of his message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the basis for everything. And more than content that makes him look impressive, Paul wants his content to be God's content the gospel, Jesus, and the cross. He wants all that he did and taught to connect to the cross of Jesus Christ. So maybe, friends, we can put Paul's words into our own words. Say something like this. Guys, flash back with me. Flash back to when I was first there with you, when we first met, when you were caught up in your old lives and you had never heard of Jesus before. Do you remember that? Do you remember? What was my message Guys, did I preach anything that was from me? Did I preach anything that was about me? No. I preached God's message. God's message about what God has done through Christ. It was God's message about how the people he made turned their backs toward to him and lived to themselves in rebellion against him and are now under his just judgment but it's also the message about how God promised to restore peace with those very people, to satisfy his law that they broke and to pay the debt that they owe. And that's exactly what he did. Guys, this is the message. Jesus, God the Son, was born of a woman, became truly man and lived in perfect obedience to the law of God and died on the cross in the place of all those enemies of God who would turn from their life to themselves and trust in him alone. Guys, stop caring so much about the messengers and start caring about the message, the foundation, the center of it all, Jesus Christ and his cross. Paul's words and our words. Now, two ways, just in our first point, we can apply uh, this, uh, what Paul says here. Two ways. We need to prize this message and we need to proclaim this message. Prize it proclaim it. When Kate and I, just a couple weeks ago, were in Savannah, Georgia, um, Savannah is how you're supposed to say it, Savannah, Georgia, uh, we walked to River Street. Uh, River Street is where settlers first came to Georgia in the late 1700s. It's where they met Native Americans. Um, it has, River Street has really cool old cobblestone roads that are terribly hard to walk on, and it has very cool old bridges as well. And on a fence of one of the bridges at River Street, there's this big, bold sign, and it says, keep off fence. It's not an electrical fence or anything, no barbed wire. It just says, keep off fence. It's old. And so what did the 10-year-old boy inside of me want to do? (laughs) We have iPhones. And so I said, hey, Kate, take a picture of me touching the fence next to the sign that says, keep off the fence. 
Uh, and that was one of the highlights of the trip. Now, the this, this sign made me think about how these kinds of signs are hung up in museums. You go to any museum, and these signs will be everywhere. Signs that will say, do not touch. They'll hang them up next to artifacts. They'll hang them up next to certain art pieces. Do not touch. And when it comes to this gospel message, Jesus Christ and him crucified, this is the main message of Christianity. This is the core. This is the foundation and the centerpiece of the Bible. Treat it like an item in the museum. No, not that it's old and ancient and dusty. That is, don't mess with it. No matter how much you want to, no matter how much your 10-year-old self wants to do it, don't dress it up. Don't suppress it. Don't change it. Rather, guard it. Prize it and know it. Put it in the spotlight. Invite others to see it and to behold it. And friends, be careful of what will distract from it. We need to prize this message, and what we prize is what we will proclaim. What we prize is what we will proclaim. We should point this out before we head to the next verses. Paul said that he came to the Corinthians proclaiming a message. Now, this is the same word proclaiming, the same word that's used for preaching or heralding. This involves simply announcing something. And this is essential to Christianity. Because the good news of Christianity is not teaching people about paths and pillars that they need to do in order to receive a good report from God. The good news of Christianity, rather, is announcing what God has already done to save us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his Son. So as Journey sang, don't stop believing, we'll add to that, don't stop proclaiming. Now, just to clarify, there's a famous quote it's attributed to Francis of Assisi, uh, but that's it's, um, proven not, he's never to have said that, but people still know this quote. It says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Now, there's a good heart behind that, a heart like similar to the book of James, that just our lives should match our message. You know, our lives should show what we believe. That's true. But some people take this too far. Some people take this to the point where they never use words at all. Friends, we can't know what we believe without words. Other people will not know Jesus Christ and him crucified without us proclaiming it, without us announcing it, without us explaining it. So we have to decide, friends, what we will proclaim. Will we proclaim a message that is something about ourselves and our own wisdom and insights and niceties? Or will we proclaim the message of how God saves sinners through the cross of Jesus Christ? So we say, prize this great gospel and proclaim this great gospel to yourself, to your family, to your neighbors, to your brothers and sisters in Christ here. Now, Paul wanted the content of his message he proclaimed to be God's message, not his own wisdom and skill. He preached Jesus Christ and him crucified and watched from, for whatever would deter from that message. There it was. Now in verses 3 and 4, he talks about the manner in which he proclaimed that message. So we got the message and now we have the manner. Now again, as Paul, you can read, just glance over verses 3 and 4. The way Paul came to the Corinthians was not the way they would have wanted him to come to them. 
They wanted somebody who was strong and wise, who could put on a great show, who could keep their attention. Oh, they're no different than us. <laughs> people have always been the same, and people are still the same now. We read earlier from 1 Samuel. What do the Israelites want out of a king? They wanted somebody that looked like the rest of the world's kings. They wanted somebody that was impressive by the world's standards. You think about Jesus and how the people received Jesus when he came to them. What did they want out of a Messiah? They wanted a warrior king that fit their own agenda, who would confront Rome, not confront their own sin and failings. Now, just reading verses 3 and 4, ask, ask yourself, how would how Paul describes himself here square away with what most American churches want out of a pastor? Verses 3 and 4, Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Now, picture Paul sitting down for an interview process at the Corinthian church, and they asked him, you know, the classic interview question, you know, what are some of your biggest strengths? I don't know what I'm supposed to say to that. Um, what are your biggest strengths, Paul? What will you be like as a pastor? And Paul said this, well, guys, I am going to be weak. I will be fearful and trembling, and I won't use plausible words of wisdom. Now, if I were giving a coaching Paul and his career path and advice, I'd say, Paul, I don't know if I would lead with that in your interview. So let's try to explain some of what Paul's manner was. So there's just weak, fearful, and trembling, no plausible words of wisdom. Some say that Paul uses this term weakness to refer to a physical illness that he had when he was with them. But when we see him using this word throughout the letter and throughout his other books in the New Testament, this term weakness is more general than just being physical. Weakness in Paul could be anything that would have made him look unimpressive in the sight of the Corinthians. It could have been anything that would have made them question how well he could have done the task of gospel ministry. So there are a number of possibilities of what weakness could entail. It could be Paul's unimpressive presence. It could be one of Paul's repellent physical maladies. Paul had problems with his eyes. It could be that Paul worked, that he had a toil with his hand. Successful teachers did not have to work and do outside work. Paul had to do that occasionally. It could be Paul's, that Paul was relatively poor. Successful teachers weren't poor. It could be Paul's vulnerability to persecution, his refusal to play the crowds with silver-tongued oratory. Paul was weak. But then Paul also, his manner was also fearful and trembling. Also a number of possibilities of what this could have been. When we consider other phrases uh, that other times this phrase is used in the New Testament, fearful and trembling refers to a humble attitude before God. One commentator sums it up like this. He says, fear and trembling should not be understood as anxiety about how people would receive Paul, but Paul's state before God. He was fearful that he would rely on himself, on his own rhetorical abilities, such that his proclamation would be ill-suited to the message of the cross. So Paul's manner, the way he describes himself, weak, fearful, and trembling. And then one last one, it says, not implausible words of wisdom. Friends, Paul didn't want to win them over with some roaring and moving speech. Rather, it was God who made the difference in their hearts. 
So here is Paul's manner. And the point of all this, whether it's weakness, fearful and trembling, not implausible words of wisdom, is that Paul wasn't who they expected him to be. Paul was not who they wanted him to be. But that did not stop God from working in the Corinthians to save them. Paul's weakness did not stop God from doing that. In fact, Paul's weakness made it clear it was by God's power alone that the Corinthians believed the word of the cross. Paul's lack of flashy speech made it clear that the Corinthians responded in faith in Jesus, not because Paul manipulated them or roused them or coerced them, but simply because the Spirit of God changed their hearts. It wasn't about Paul. Paul didn't make the difference. God did. And Paul's methods showed that. That's how Paul always operated. We read an example of it earlier in 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote to them how the gospel he preached to them came in power because the Holy Spirit moved in their hearts so that they received it not as a word from man, but as a word from God. Some of you heard this story. Uh, me tell this story during a Wednesday night fellowship. Uh, it was one of our Wednesday night Zoom calls. Um, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. Uh, one of the pastors at Third Avenue Baptist, where I was a member um, at, during seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he talked about his time with Campus Crusade when he was in China. Uh, he developed a friendship with a college student there in China uh, who didn't know the Lord. There is a language barrier between uh, Matt, who is this pastor, and, his, and this Chinese student. Um, the Chinese student only know, knew a little bit of English. So he got, they got to their relationship to a point where Matt thought it would be comfortable to, you know, introduce the gospel a little bit more clearly. And so Matt thought it best to watch the Jesus film with his friend. If you're not familiar with the Jesus film, uh, it's been translated, it's based on the gospel of Luke. It's been translated into many, many languages. And so Matt thought this would be something clear for his friend to understand. But another thing you should know about the Jesus film is that they made it in 1979. And to put it mildly, it's pretty cheesy and dated. Now, Matt's Chinese friend, the student, he loved modern filmmaking. And while they were watching it, Matt grew uneasy because he knew that his friend might just easily dismiss the movie that they were watching. But they made it through the entire thing. And you know how Matt's friend responded? He told Matt that it was the greatest movie he had ever seen. And he professed faith in Jesus Christ. The point of the story is that it's not that we shouldn't work hard to communicate the gospel well. We should. It's not that we shouldn't present a good case for Christ. It's not that we shouldn't believe passionately what we say. Paul did all those things. Now, friends, it's that our confidence should not be in those things. That's Paul's point here. Charles Spurgeon, you might know him. He's one of the most gifted preachers in all of church history. He used to try to keep his confidence in the right place, not in himself but in God. Because every week as he walked up to the pulpit to preach, he would whisper to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Friends, the point is, don't worry so much about style. We worry about faithfulness to the gospel. Not so much about style, but about faithfulness. God is the one who makes the difference, who opens eyes, who changes hearts. 
And just reading over this and contemplating on this passage, this is a word that I needed to hear. You should know that. This is a word that I personally needed to hear. Because as a guy who preaches week in and week out, I, I put pressure on myself to have kind of fresh and insightful words for each sermon. And especially when I listen to the sermons that other older and wiser and straight up better preachers preach, because I enjoy listening to them, that self-imposed pressure just multiplies. Now, I want to heed the words of Paul to Timothy and 1 Timothy by giving myself over diligently to grow in this task. But more than having the goal of speaking fresh and insightful words, I want my goal to be speaking words that are faithful and true. So those goals are reversed if I pursue freshness and insightfulness over faithfulness. Sooner or later, I will compromise faithfulness in the attempt to advance my own persona. So each week, my goal first should be to preach words that are faithful and true, to follow Paul's example, just like everybody else should, to preach the gospel whose source is God, you know, it's the testimony of God, to preach the gospel whose content is Jesus Christ and him crucified, and to preach the gospel whose power is the Spirit of God. Now, real quick, I know this, this point is a little bit longer, but as we just wrap up this particular point on the manner Paul preached, he's right into the Corinthians, so obviously this is a word that they needed to hear. So remember that just in the paragraph before that, if you, before this, if you could see it, Paul said, not many of you guys were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were of power. Not many of you were of noble birth. So the Corinthians, like we've said, didn't measure up to the world's standards, but they were people who desperately wanted to. And again, Paul reminds them that it's okay. Just remember me. I was not impressive when I came to you. I did not try to be impressive when I came to you. And yet, God still worked in you, brought you to faith when I preached Christ and changed your lives. This is a word the Corinthians needed to hear. It's a word that we need to hear also. Friends, our weakness does not hinder God working through us. Our weakness does not hinder God working through us. In fact, it often opens up the door for God to work through us. You see, when we are weak but when are faithful, it places God on center stage. When we are weak but faithful, it displays that we don't rely on ourselves, we rely on God. That's what it means to be a Christian in the first place, that we no longer rely on our own works, we rely on Christ in our place. So friends, the point is, if Paul was okay with weakness and God worked through Paul's weakness in the Corinthians' lives, let's be okay with weakness. Let's be okay with it. I'll just bring this home real specifically. Yes, we are a smaller congregation by American standards. Sure. But we are going to be joyfully, persistently faithful because we believe the gospel is true. And we believe that God uses the faithful proclamation of the gospel even when it comes from weak people. Yeah, we'll bring this home. You might stammer through your words and get sidetracked whenever you even think about talking about Jesus to somebody who doesn't know him. 
But you know what? You show your faith that it is God who makes the difference in that person, not you, when you say something anyway. We'll bring this home just a little bit. One last example. You might feel sidelined by your age or by your health. But imagine the impression God can make on those around you when you are faithful to him and faithful even to proclaim the gospel when you are at your weakest point. Paul's manner was not stylish. It was not showy. It was not strong. It was simple, faithful, and weak. So we say, Work hard, be faithful to proclaim it, and don't worry about style. Be okay with weakness and let God do the work. So whether it was what Paul preached or how Paul preached, last M, the motive behind it, was not so that people would have faith in his ability, but in God's power. You see that in verse 5? Look at verse 5 one more time. He says, so that should Blinkers going off. This is the purpose of this whole paragraph. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So again, we just think of the Corinthians, the people who valued the showy and eloquent teachers. Paul's already reminded them that that's not who he is. That's not who he tries to be. And yet God used him to work through them. And now he reminds them of his purpose in general and not trying to be impressive. And this reminder is meant to put them back on track. It's meant to make them trust no longer in their own ability and wisdom and human performance. It's meant to shift them to trust in God to bring about faith in people. So you friends, uh, with this motive and these tactics, underneath our tactics lies a motive, and underneath our motives lies theology. Underneath the Corinthians' values and strategies is what they believed. You think about questions like this. What is humanity's biggest problem? And who or what is the solution? How does someone come to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Your answers to these questions will shape how you do local church ministry and gospel ministry in general. Your answers to those questions are very important. We see that borne out in all of church history. Just a Major example, if you don't know, is the difference between the first and the second great awakenings in the United States. These happened in the late 18th century and the early 19th century. So from about 1735 to 1750, the American colonies experienced a massive spiritual movement under the preaching of men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Men like them and after them preached the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. Many responded in repentance and faith. These men pleaded with people, they prayed to God, but they understood that at times God gave the fruit of faith in those who heard, and other times he didn't give the fruit of faith. They understood that they did not plan or achieve revivals, rather they were gifts from God. But then beginning around 1800, revival broke out on a greater scale across the young nation, and people began to respond in increasingly dramatic and disruptive ways. And some leaders wanted to capitalize on this and try to duplicate it. So they focused on doing whatever they can to manufacture an outward response to the gospel, an outward and immediate response to the gospel. So the point of all this, what what went underneath this shift was a change in what they believed. 
they shifted, this new focus came in large part because of a shift in what they believed about how a person comes to faith in Christ. No longer did they believe that God had to give a person a new heart. Instead, they believed that it was entirely within an individual's power to make the decision to repent and believe. And so they adopted the practices that best played on emotions to produce decisions. Practices such as the anxious bench, the altar call, singling out people personally within a service. This resulted, this had some negative results. It resulted in people confusing real life-changing faith with a simple outward act. And that can give a false impression, a false assurance of salvation. So it goes something like this. And friends, this is still around, unfortunately. People could walk an aisle. People can pray a prayer. People could raise their hand when everybody else's eyes are closed. And then they could be told right then and there that they are saved. And then they could go on to live no differently than how they had lived before. But even after years of not following Christ, they can have assurance because they took that one outward action of faith. A long example, I know. But all this came from shifting their trust from God to themselves. And who is the one who brings about faith in Christ and a person and an unbeliever? Friends, the point, Paul's point here, we cannot bring about faith, only God can. Just think about it. Think about it logically. If we have the power to secure a response of faith in the gospel in those who hear, then there would be constant and permanent revival. But there's not. We're charged simply to be faithful, not to manipulate people to a response. And when we act like we can bring about faith in someone, then we end up robbing God of his glory from what he alone can do. When we act like we can bring about faith in someone, we contradict the message that we proclaim, the message about the cross. The cross tells us that we rely not on ourselves, but on Jesus. The cross tells us that we are guilty, that we cannot pay the debt that we owe, that God himself must do it for us. So just as we believe that we need someone to save us from ourselves, so also we need to minister like that. We want to minister in such a way that depends not on our ability, but on God's power. Just in closing, real quick, in closing, what does that look like? To minister and proclaim the message in such a way that depends not on our ability, but God's power. Well, it doesn't look that revolutionary. It just looks like simple, normal, faithful, confident proclamation of the gospel. Simply that. The problem is so many of us don't like ordinary. <laughs> and could it be, just thinking of this as individuals, could it be that we don't have much to say about the gospel outside of one hour on Sunday morning because we're afraid of what people will think of us? That's a common question we ask ourselves. Because we're afraid that we won't perform well in those situations. Because we won't be well received in those situations. Brothers and sisters, that mindset makes it about us. And that mindset shows that we believe, however subtly, we believe that it's our well-spokenness that changes hearts, not God's power. Friends, the good news is that is not the case. It does not, if it depended on our ability, then no one would ever believe. 
But praise God that he changes hearts. Praise God. All of us in this room, each member in this room, is evidence that God changes hearts. When you are discouraged, remember your brothers and sisters at your local church. God saved them. Take heart. Take courage. So what does this look like? What does it look like to minister in such a way that depends not on our ability but on God's power? Well, it looks like not getting caught up in all the latest trends and fads. It looks like simply and joyfully, passionately, rigorously, prayerfully proclaiming the gospel. Week in, week out, every day. It's a ministry that's realistic and honest about what we can't do and confident about what God alone can do. Now, as we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians, Paul's not done discussing our role and God's role in gospel ministry. But for now, he discusses his own philosophy. Paul doesn't aim to be impressive. Paul doesn't aim to receive loud applause. Paul doesn't aim to put on a good show, to be well-received. Paul aimed to proclaim the way God saves, the cross of Jesus Christ, not to distract from it, not to get in the way of it, and he lets God take care of the rest. Let's do the same with God's help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, your word that gives life. Lord, help us keep our confidence in the right place, to keep our confidence in you. Lord, keep us persevering in faithfulness. Give us strength for this task and joy in this task. And finally, Father, we pray that you accompany the faithful words we proclaim with power. Do what we cannot do in the hearts of those who hear us, even the hearts that are here this morning. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.